Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. And today we're going to be talking about Tom Jump, also known as T-Jump. Stick with us. Why don't you think you know you're not in the Matrix? I think that's crazy. And what I think you're coming back and saying is, oh, but like the probability of all of those is just, is just exactly the same. And that's, I mean, that's a view. You can totally have that view. Tom, Tom, in English, I, I, I agreed to conduct this discussion in English. Okay, so I'm, I, I'm, I mean, we can all make up our own words, but I'm talking about the English word knowledge. I've been doing response videos for about a year. And in that time, I've been asked more than once by a lot of people uh, to make a response video to Tom Jump of the channel T-Jump. And I didn't want to do that for a while because I didn't see him as one of the primary voices I was concerned with um, uh, speaking to and, and responding to. And the reason for that is people can disagree with my methodology here, but I wanted to respond to the voices that were making the biggest impact, that were moving the most people, that seemed to be impacting a large number of people toward atheism or away from Christian theism. And there were just a lot bigger voices out there. And I've tried to respond to those kinds of people. Uh, T-Jump's channel is relatively small in that regard, although it is growing and it's growing fairly rapidly. And he's spoken to a lot of well-known theologians, philosophers, and people like that. Uh, But I saw a clip recently from Matt Dillahunty that I'll play you in just a moment that made me uh, think maybe he uh, deserves a little more attention and maybe now is the time to give him that attention. Uh, So here it is. This is my response video to Tom Jump in general, primarily his methodology. And I hope that it'll be helpful to some of you. So let's begin with kind of my foundational ideas about what T-Jump does. And this is kind of going to summarize basically everything I'm going to unpack and show and demonstrate, I think, in this video. And that is that primarily what we see among some atheists is a desire to demonstrate or show that um, what atheism gets you, uh, that, 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 or that what the theistic arguments get you, is not Cartesian certainty. And so long as it's not Cartesian certainty, we shouldn't have to believe it or shouldn't be expected to believe it because skepticism. Now, uh, some of you might reject that. And as I always say on this show, if the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. I'm not talking about you if this isn't you. However, I've shown that with a lot of atheists, this seems to be the case. Now, when it comes to someone like Matt Dillahunty, it's not quite as clear, but if you really know where to look, you kind of see it uh, broiling under the hood. So I've shown this before, but I'll, I'll give him as an example, because I think he is the previous iteration of new YouTube Atheism 2.0 that we see in T-Jump. So uh, Dillahunty would say things like, well, you need a demonstration to uh, in order for something to be believed. And I don't know what that demonstration would look like for Christianity or the Christian God, but you need to have a demonstration. Now, I noticed early on that this is a very ambiguous term. What does he mean by demonstration? And it seems to be somewhat subjective what counts as a good demonstration. So in my debate with Dillahunty, it was one of the first questions I asked him in my question and answer time is, you've often said that we need a demonstration. What do you mean by demonstration? And he began talking more about the fact that it would need to be something uh, that, that, um, that we could test or repeat or whatever. He talked about how Uh, He doesn't know exactly what it would look like for Christian theism, but if God exists, he would know what it is, and he should be able to to, uh, give me something that would uh, demonstrate the truth of all of these things. Okay, so so what I see happening there 
and as I've pointed out many times, is if you claim that hasn't been demonstrated yet, but you can't tell me what the demonstration would look like, and when it counts as a good demonstration is when it's convincing to you, then what we see happening there is an epistemology that allows, whether Dillahunty's aware of this or trying to do this, I'm not, I'm not pointing out what I think are his motivations. I'm just saying this is what that looks like, uh, boots on the ground. And what that looks like boots on the ground is whatever you think, what, what, whatever the case may be, whatever d- evidence is given to you, um, it, 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 I don't have to count that as evidence because, or as good evidence or, or convincing evidence because it's not a demonstration. And so long as Cartesian certainty is the standard we're going for, uh, and you don't think we can get Cartesian certainty, uh, Dillahunty says he doesn't believe that we can have Cartesian certainty, but anything less has to be a demonstration, but what counts as demonstration is up to Dillahunty, then we just end up in a subjective, uh, you know, swamp where you get to decide what counts and almost nothing counts. Let me give you a good example of this with Dillahunty, and then we're going to go on to T-Jump in just a few moments. So here's T-Jump in 2014 talking with Matt Slick about the idea of an ocean parting, not the Red Sea, an ocean parting in Jesus' name. Here we go. To convince me, but I would, that doesn't mean that I'm Parting of the, of the sky, parting of the Red Sea, parting of, the red, of an ocean. You're sitting there and someone says the name of Jesus and the ocean parts. You're going to believe in God now? No. Okay. What would it take then? I just told you I don't know what it would take, but I can explain to you why that's not convincing. How did you demonstrate a causal link between, in the name of Jesus, part the sea and the sea parting? So you have. Okay. So what you just saw on the screen is an example of uh, what I think happens a lot of times. So uh, the ocean. A man says in Jesus' name of the ocean parts. You going to believe now? No. Why not? How did you demonstrate that there was a causal link there? And this gets to the heart of this. You might say, well, that's right. You can't absolutely prove that. And that means that what you're looking for is some sort of Cartesian certainty. I've been criticized by atheists in the past for claiming that what a particular atheist seems to be looking for is some kind of Cartesian certainty when they say it's not. Okay, well, if it's not Cartesian certainty, then you need to do better in explaining where that benchmark is. Because because what we're really talking about here is what should be persuasive to you. Now, you can structure your epistemology and say, this is what I think should count as persuasive. But as I said in my debate with him, if, if, um, if you're the kind of person, and this is the average person, by the way, this is the average atheist who is not all wrapped up in YouTube atheism. If you ask the average person, if someone parted an ocean in Jesus' name, said in Jesus' name and the ocean parted, would you then believe most of them, if not the vast majority, are going to say, oh yeah, of course, you just don't have that which is fair enough, and that's a different discussion. But what Dillahunty is saying is, if that happened, no. This is the sort of thing that should be really persuasive to you. Now, how do they get out of the force of this? By finding what I, what I would call, what they, what they make of themselves are what I would call pinhole thinkers. What I'm saying here is, a pinhole thinker is someone who sees that the obvious explanation, the, the one that should be accepted, the one that should be persuasive, is it's very clear it's Christian theism, or at least theism, depending on what we're talking about. But there is this pinhole over here, a, a little place that I think I've found where I can wiggle out of the force of that argument. And so long as I can wiggle through that pinhole and get out of the force, and it doesn't technically have to be true, then I don't have to believe it. This was... The, the, you know, the new, new atheism. 
you know, the new atheism we had with Christopher Hitchens, and Richard Dawkins, and Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennett. This is the new new atheism with Matt Dillahunty and some of the other YouTube atheists. What uh, T-Jump represents, I think, is the new, new, new atheism. And this is important because, and why I think he warrants some kind of a response now, is because not only have I been asked to respond to him, but also some of the new, new atheists apparently are thinking of um, promoting T-Jump. So let's see an example of that. Here's Dillahunty in a recent discussion. Uh, someone asks him, what about Tom Jump? Are you going to do anything with Tom Jump? Do you plan on ever doing a talk with uh, Jump? Yeah. And he's probably going to end up on Atheist Experience at some point. Tom did a debate in the studio right before my previous debate or two debates ago. Personally, I think this is a great opportunity as an attempt to bridge it. Okay, so what we have here is an, uh, an example of uh, or an indication that at least Matt Dillahunty is saying, yeah, T-Jump is someone I want to associate with and promote, uh, which is telling because it's not that he's somebody you want to promote because he has a big channel. Um, it's someone you want to promote because clearly you agree with his ideas or think that he's, he's doing something right, right? Okay, T-Jump is the epitome of a pinhole thinker to the extreme. Now, the problem is, in my opinion, when you're looking for some little pinhole way of wiggling out of the force of the argument, no matter how bizarre, no matter how far-fetched, to get out of the force of one of these theistic arguments or a resurrection case or whatever, in order to escape the force of the claims, then what you're doing is you are... Uh, you, it doesn't strike me as someone who's searching for truth. You're not. You're not looking for what the truth about it is anymore. Now, again, I'm not. I'm not uh, condemning T Jump's uh, motivations. I'm just saying how I think this does play out, and the impression that it does seem to clearly give is that you're not really interested in finding out the truth because an ocean parting in Jesus' name, uh, for example, with Dillahunty, seems like that should really be persuasive. Need I point out again that in Mike Lycona's debate with Dillahunty, he's, and I know this is Dillahunty, not T-Jump, but we're going to see how it's even more the case with T-Jump, I think. Uh, it is debate with Mike Lycona. Mike Lycona said, what if my head gets cut off and then at a later time, uh, my head reattaches without human involvement. And I begin to tell you about things that happened with a, a, a friend or a loved one uh, that I had a conversation with in an afterlife experience, things that only you would have known that that person about a conversation only you two would have known about. And I tell you about it. Then are you going to believe? No. This is anything I can, because how do I know that I'm not confused? Or how do I know that I'm not out of my mind? Or how do I know that aliens didn't do it? Or how did I rule out some, uh, some illusion that I'm not aware of? Because any, um, so any uh, sufficient technology um, is indistinguishable from magic and all those kind of things that he always says, right? How do I know? I can't know. So I'm looking for any, so this is any little, obviously you should believe the, on the basis of those things. That would be persuasive to anyone, but you're looking for any little pinhole that you can wiggle out of technically to escape the argument. That doesn't strike me as someone who is seeking truth. And if those kinds of things would be convincing to you, like Matt Dill or Mike Lycona's head cutting off and that whole thing, or uh, if someone parted an ocean in Jesus' name, if you would find those compelling, then guess what? I'm, I, then I'm not talking to you and the opinions of T-Jump and Matt Dillahunty should have absolutely no sway on you at all because that is what we could refer to as an unreasonable and unbridled skepticism. So, th so this is why I think that sort of thing should just be dismissed without in any serious interest. I don't need to really engage with you on that because that is 
absurd. You say, yeah, but technically there could be this way of escaping it. Okay, I don't, I don't care about that. Because the reality is nobody is really looking, Christian, at least many of us who are Christian apologists, are not trying to give you Cartesian certainty, nor do we necessarily think it's attainable or necessary. What we're saying is it is reasonable to believe, more reasonable than the alternative, that God exists, and uh, with a good resurrection case, perhaps that the Christian God exists, and it's indeed plausible, more likely to be the case than not, and you should believe. We think it's really, really, uh, there's really, really good reason to believe this, um, so much so that you should believe this. So, uh, so when you, when you, when you approach it as though, well, well, I found this way to wiggle out of the force of this argument. Um, yeah, who cares? Nobody's trying to give you Cartesian certainty, or at least very few of us are, uh, very few are. So I'm just, I'm just trying to give you, this seems like the most reasonable case. So anyone who's approaching it that way, to my way of thinking, uh, that, that sort of an approach shouldn't be taken seriously. It's irrelevant. You know who it's going to convince? Well, let's play this clip by T Jump explaining his opinions about this, and then we'll and then we'll talk more about it. You'd only ever say something like, "Given what we currently know, there is no currently no reason to believe in the supernatural." Use the tentative evidence of given what we currently know to justify a tentative conclusion. There is currently no reason to believe. However, you could not say, given what we currently know, there is absolutely no supernatural, because it's a contradiction. The statement we currently know is tentative and only applies to the known things, whereas the statement there is absolutely no is absolute and applies to all of the things, including those in the unknown category that aren't in the tentative category. So we can use the tentative evidence of given what we know to justify the tentative conclusion of we currently have reason to believe X, but you can't use the tentative evidence of given what we currently know to justify the absolute conclusion there is absolutely no. The, there is absolutely no supernatural as a stopping point for truth, which we can't justify with any form of human knowledge. It's like claiming that the natural world is the biggest number. And this same logic applies to a god. For example, take the, the claim, God is by definition not created, or there is only one god, there is no super god. This claim fails for the exact same reason as metaphysical naturalism, the claim there is only the natural and no supernatural. Even if we had as much evidence for a god as we do for the natural world, that would not show God was not created by another greater god for the exact same reason. There could always be another greater God out there we just haven't discovered yet. This applies. Okay, so this is enough to get to the point that I really want to make about this. And this demonstrates that what T-Jump is after when it comes to God, uh, at least certain claims about God in the universe, is um, that he's looking for Cartesian certainty. Uh, because, think about this, he's saying, uh, we, we, you know, I as a naturalist could never say that um, I know that there is, I absolutely know that uh, there is nothing supernatural anywhere in the universe or in reality or whatever, because that would be like, that would be like, that would require me to know everything, right? To be able to say something like that. So I can't possibly say that. In other words, I can't be expected. I, this isn't really the point he's making right here. He's pointing out by analogy, you, you can't say, just like I can't say that there is, that the supernatural does not exist, certainly, because I would have to know everything with certainty in order to make a claim like that with certainty or with absolute knowledge, which he says later in the discussion is synonymous with uh, certainty. Uh, and, I'm, and it has to be a form of Cartesian certainty given the context. Uh, but taking, taking that, it's like, he's saying it's like that with God. How could you ever say God has these omni-attributes? Well, okay, there's, there's a couple of things here. First of all, the omni-attributes of God, as Trent Doherty later points out in the debate, are not necessary for Christian theism to be true. Now, we get those things through special revelation elsewhere, but, that's, uh, but in order for Christian theism to be true, all you need is that God exists and God raises Jesus from the dead. Now, if you want to say something like, well, if God did exist and God did raise Jesus from the dead, that wouldn't show that Christianity qua Christianity is true either. 
um, then you are again falling back into the whole pinhole thinking that we're trying to point out is problematic and unsustainable. And that is the idea that, well, that's technically a way I could wiggle out of this. Yeah, but what should persuade you? If a man went around um, in first century Palestine uh, talking about himself as though he is God's special eschatological agent to bring about the kingdom on earth, as if he's saying, just watch my life and see what happens. And then he dies and, and, uh, and then he rises from the dead, right? In the thought experiment, you're granting that. Um, God exists, God raised that Jesus from the dead. What you should believe is that Jesus gave us a predictive principle and then he delivered on that. And so Christianity is extremely likely to be true given those circumstances. Uh, to say, well, maybe that doesn't necessarily mean that Christianity is true, would be back to the pinhole thinking. So uh, it, it, all that's necessary for Christianity to be true is that God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead. With the omni-attributes, it's not necessary that we posit, in order for this to get off the ground, that God has omnipotence, but that he's sufficiently powerful to create a universe. It's not, it's not necessary that we claim something like uh, that there's not an infinite chain of gods coming before this God, although we could easily show that that's false on other grounds. It's not necessary that we show that God is omnibenevolent. Uh, it's just that he's incredibly loving. And morally interested. It's not. It's not necessary. In other words, to show these omni categories in order to get Christianity off the ground. Then we could look at special revelation, present new debates and new arguments to show that those other principles that we think are true are in fact true on the basis of what we do know. And you could build up that way. It's not that hard. Christians have been doing this for years. And in fact, when T Jump seemed to understand that that's Trent Doherty's position or something akin to what I just described, that we don't have to have these omni attributes, then guess what? He said, fine, then we can move on to the next thing. But what I really want you to get here is that what he's talking about, the reason that he can't say that there is no supernatural, and the reason we can't talk about an omni-being and all these kind of things, is because we don't have Cartesian certainty. In other words, you'd have to have absolute knowledge about all things in order to say something like that, and humans just don't have that sort of knowledge. In other words, in order for him to to say that, that, uh, that naturalism is true for sure, he would have to know that for sure in the sense of Cartesian certainty. That means that what he's talking about, when he's talking about having uh, justified absolute knowledge about something or justified knowledge claims of the sorts that he needs in order for him to believe that Christianity is true, falls into this absolute certainty camp. But as I said before, only a few Christians out there uh, namely presuppositionalist Christians, are trying to say that you can have absolute certainty of that sort. All we're trying to say is that you should believe, you should be persuaded by this. This is enough information that you can claim to know certain of these things and that it's more reasonable to believe than not. In fact, I recently um, asked a question on Twitter about YouTube atheists. I, I wanted to know of any YouTube atheists who believe uh, who who not who don't just take the lack theism that that uh, they atheism the way they define it is just a lack of belief in God but they're not saying that God does not exist they just lack a belief in God um, not that they maintain the position that God does not exist like like many of your academic atheists before 15 years and maybe even right up to today still would define it. Um, I asked for, for anybody like that in the YouTube community that, that, that maintains the position that God does not exist, like classical atheism in that sense. And uh, one person said something like, and I'll put it on the screen later so you'll be seeing it, but um, someone said something like, well, um, yeah, because you're trying to stack the whole debate in your favor. 
And one of the one of the other Christian apologists online said, "Wait a minute, hold on. Did you just did you just kind of admit that if we pitted it arguments for God's existence as opposed to arguments against God's existence, that Christianity wins in such a debate?" Yeah, I think I think that's how that shakes out. So here's the thing: what what we have is, and I think most atheists know it. I think most atheists know that. And if, again, if this is not you, if the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. But I think many of the atheists know if dadgummit, if we try to present arguments that God does not exist against these arguments that God does exist, we lose every time. So what we've got to do is come up with another way to do this. So we'll go with this uh, position where we don't have a burden of proof and we can't be expected to have a burden of proof because after all, you can't prove a negative. Now, fortunately, I don't think the T-Jump would say that. You can, in some cases, prove that something does not exist. Now, take an exa- for example, um, some habitable planet on the other side of the universe where it's entirely inhabited by uh, something like dogs. Okay, so far as I know, that may be a possible world. Okay, that, that, or there, that may be a world that actually, in actuality, exists, a, a planet where that actually exists. I can't prove that it doesn't exist, as far as I know. But a, a planet on the other side of the universe, inhabited by nothing but two dimensional square circles, I think I can show does not exist. Why? Because two dimensional square circles are impossible because they are internally incoherent. And so what uh, thoughtful atheists have tried to do, and we're going to see how T-Jump tries to do this in a little while, is to, is to show that, um, that God, so defined, is, has internal incoherence. That he doesn't, that it's con- there's contradictory things in his nature. And so that God, at least defined that way, does not exist, right? Okay, so, but what T-Jump is doing here is he's saying, hey man, I can't say that there's no God. I can't say that there's that, that there's no supernatural because I would have to have knowledge of all things. So I shouldn't be I, w- I shouldn't have to be saddled with this need to defend that sort of thing. And you likewise, though you're trying to defend this God defined in a certain way, you can't you can't show that that should be believed either because you would have to have Cartesian certainty about these things. You'd have to have what he calls absolute knowledge, which later he says is certainty of the sort that we're describing. The problem is this is exactly the problem with Dillahunty. It results results in a situation where number one, you don't have a burden of proof and, and what you, and how you're shooting down our arguments is you're coming up with weird hypotheticals or separate models and, and showing that these exist as a pinhole of a way that I could possibly wiggle out of the force of your argument because your argument doesn't give me absolute certainty, Cartesian certainty. Okay. Well, I'm not interested in that sort of thinking. Do you know why? Here's why. Because, number one, it doesn't seem to represent a search for the truth. The search for the truth is, what is probably the case? What should I believe? You know who's going to be convinced by this sort of a thing? There are people. The people that are going to be convinced by this sort of a thing are those people. and, and, And again, I'm sorry, this is going to sound a little bit harsh. It's going to sound like I'm saying this about all atheists, and I'm not saying this about all atheists. I'm saying this about the types of atheists that are convinced by this sort of uh, argumentation that we often get from someone like T-Jump. Those people who are interested in finding that little pinhole way of wiggling out of the force of an argument are people who are not interested so much in seeking the truth as much as they are, they don't want to believe that this is the case. Listen, I'm only saying this about a certain segment. I don't like it when apologists say this about all atheists. I'm saying this about a particular segment. The type of people who are going to be interested in the pinhole thinking are the type of people who don't want to believe and are looking for some way to wiggle out of the force of the arguments. Those kinds of people, guess what? They're going to find a way not to believe anyway. 
This is just the avenue that they found to do it is this sort of a thinking. And so, I, you know, I can't do much in terms of those people in terms of arguing with them anyway, because there seems to be already a bias or a commitment towards unbelief. Um, so that's why this pinhole thinking, to my mind, is completely a waste of time and doesn't even represent what Christians are trying to say. Most Christian apologists are trying to say, we're not trying to say you can get Cartesian certainty. What we're trying to say is you should be persuaded by this. And most of your average people on the street, uh, even who are atheists, will see the force of this. And so this absolute certainty thing is for the birds. It, does, it doesn't affect me. I'm not interested in that at all. I'm not interested in having debates or discussions about that. It's completely irrelevant because the types of people that that sort of thing is going to convince are the type of people who are looking for any little pinhole to wiggle out of the force of the arguments. And those people have already made a decision. I'll still try to reach out to them. But as far as this goes, that is a particular type of person that needs some other approach. Uh, so let's see. The reason I, I say this, the, the reason I point this out is what T-Jump is known for is coming up with weird, you know, possible frameworks that he doesn't even believe are the case in many cases that try to in some way handle the same sorts of problems that theism more clearly and, and fittingly handles to show that there is at least possibly this other way out. There, so then if there is at least this other possible way, we can't say that this is the is the absolute certain only way, which of course isn't what we are trying to do anyway. We're just trying to show that this is the one you should take. This is the one that should persuade you. Um, I noticed that certain people who talk to T-Jump notice this as well. And they don't say it outright so much as they do imply it strongly with the way they talk. Trent Doherty is a good example. Let's hear what Trent has to say about this sort of thinking. I don't know why we got to bring Kant into it. Yeah, sometimes things aren't what they appear to be. But most of the time they are. Why think otherwise? Why, so you said, give, why don't you think you know you're not in the Matrix? I think that's crazy. Can we just appreciate that for a moment? When I heard this debate, <laughs> that was one of my favorite parts. And it illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. Do we have Cartesian certainty that we're not in the Matrix? No, we do not. Uh, but yet still, Trent Doherty, who must be thinking along somewhat the lines that I'm thinking now, says, why don't you think you can claim to know that you're not in the Matrix? I think that's crazy. I love that. That illustrates exactly the point that we're trying to make. It's not about Cartesian certainty. It's about what should persuade you such that you then can claim to know something. All right, let's continue. So you said you didn't understand what I meant when I said a stopping point for truth. Well, what I meant was the noumenal phenomenal distinction. That's what I'm talking about. So the reason I brought that up was in order to explain to you what I'm talking about. All right. Well, the, the, the concept of a stopping point for truth plays absolutely zero role in my theorizing about the epistemology of anything. Okay. Just zero. I mean, all I care about is the... So you about the only word you used that I was able to track was tentative. Now, that I understand. That I understand. Because I'm a probabilist. In fact, I'm a radical probabilist. I take a lot of heat. Whoa, did you hear that thunder? Holy cow. I take a lot of heat from certain schools of epistemology because I don't believe that I can be certain of anything. Not even I think, therefore, I am. Not technically certain. Okay, so I'm a, what's called a radical probabilist, a term that was coined by Richard Jeffries, who's kind of my philosophical hero. And um, so everything that I believe, I believe tentatively, 
But that doesn't mean I don't believe it's actually that way. I mean, technically, I, my belief in evolution is tentative, but that doesn't mean I don't believe it, and it certainly doesn't mean I don't know it. It just means that, that fallibilism is true, that knowledge doesn't entail certainty. That's, what my, that's actually a big part of what my dissertation was on, was the proposition that knowledge does not entail certainty. Do you think knowledge entails certainty? Only of certain kinds of claims. So I well, take the science. I didn't I ask agree you with that. I ask you if knowledge entailed certainty, Tom. Only of certain kinds of claims. So knowledge can have different classes. I can say I have knowledge that I am imagining a unicorn. Does that require? Okay. So what T Jump says in this discussion is he tries to point out because I'm trying to give him a fair shake. So he doesn't. He can claim to know if I tell him I just bought a dog. He doesn't have to have absolute certainty. Uh, that I bought a dog in the Cartesian sense. Like he doesn't have to go check the receipts or he didn't have to have been there when I did it or whatever, uh, or no, he's not in the matrix and see me do it. He doesn't have to have all that to claim to know that I have a dog because, and here's the difference in the knowledge because d people buy dogs all the time. That's empirically verifiable. Dogs exist. That's empirically verifiable. So there's nothing about, these are all mundane claims as others have said, this, that none, so that doesn't claim, or that does that sort of a claim doesn't need that level of certainty. But when we're talking about omnis, and when we're talking about um, what can, what all exists in reality, whether supernatural might exist somewhere, and all these kind of things, then in that sense, in that case, you do need Cartesian certainty about those sorts of things. But I can't see why. I, I still can't see why. And this is what Trent Doherty goes on to argue is. What we're talking, as long as we're not talking about having to have Cartesian certainty about our knowledge claims, it doesn't matter if we're talking about dogs or God's omnipotence. Even though, as I said, we don't need God's omnipotence to show that Christianity is true, then we could reason out to get to the omnipotence indirectly through special revelation and doctrinal discussions and things like that. But just in terms of the arguments to get to uh, Christianity, you don't need omnipotence. Uh, but even if I think that God is omnipotent for reasons, why do I have to have Cartesian certainty to claim that I know that? I mean, the, whether it's the dog or God's omnipotence or whatever, what we're trying to point out, what Trent Doherty is trying to point out, what I'm trying to point out is what you, what you need is a, a principle of what should be persuasive. What should be persuasive to you? And you don't have to have Cartesian certainty to see what would be persuasive. I mean, after all, uh, T-Jump later in this very discussion says something very similar. I mean, Trent Doherty uh, went, you know, kind of said, hey, do you have that sort of knowledge about the existence of quarks? And he said, well, yeah, because it's testable and repeatable. We can do experiments and determine that quarks. Yeah, but have you done those experiments? Have you seen it? No, but in theory, I could buy all the stuff. And Oh, yeah, but you haven't done those things. What, what you're doing is you're, you're, you don't have Cartesian certainty about that, but you what you have been presented with is persuasive. That's all, that's all that's necessary is that we have something that should persuade you. Um, and, and you're asking for Cartesian certainty. So what that does for you is two things at once. Number one, you have almost no burden of proof, uh, because you, you admit you can't give Cartesian certainty that God doesn't exist or that the supernatural is false. And we have an insurmountable goal that we're supposed to meet which is to give you some kind of Cartesian certainty about that. Now, what some, like Dylan Hunty, have said in the past is, hey, that's not our fault. That's just the way it is. Well, it's only that way if you structure your epistemology such that you require it to be that way. But we don't really have to care too much how you structure your epistemology. This is still what should be persuasive to normal people who are not looking for a pinhole to wiggle out 
of your of their theology or of their thinking out of uh, the Christian position. In fact, um, what we hear oftentimes from atheists ever since the new atheist came around is, well, y- y- we hear all the time this, you're, you're arguing from ignorance, right? It's like uh, Christian theism used to explain all these things, but as science has progressed, it's gotten to the point where Christian th- the things that Christianity is needed to explain are very small or theism is needed to explain are very small and it's recessed back. Actually, that is the exact opposite of what what has happened, and I can demonstrate it with these clips right here. What has happened in actuality is that you have people like T-Jump, and they're looking for Cartesian certainty. Do you know what that means? That means that as science and as philosophy has progressed, we keep finding out new things that make it more reasonable to believe that God exists. That's why you have to have this lack theism in order to escape the arguments. And so what you've done is to put the bar of proof as high as, now Now, get this, Not you haven't just raised, skepticism hasn't just raised their bar higher and higher. They have raised their bar as high as it could possibly be. They have raised it to Cartesian certainty. It couldn't be any higher than that. So, so, as we see more and more good reason to believe that it's true from design, from teleology, from moral arguments, from cosmological facts and cosmological arguments. And the more PhDs that debate these things and win and show that it's true and write books and all these kind of things, you are having to raise the bar higher and higher to escape the force of the arguments such that it has changed the methodology to this sort of approach. And it has required Cartesian certainty. And that has come at a cost for atheism because now those old arguments to show that atheism is true, that, that God does not exist, we had to let go of those for the most part, or at least repurpose how we use them. And as for the arguments for God's existence, you guys can never, you, you guys can never reach the bar of Cartesian certainty. Two things. Number one, as I've said already, we never were trying to reach that bar. Oh yeah, I'd like to. If we had something like that, I'd love to do it. But we never were trying to do that. And secondly, what you've demonstrated is an unreasonable level of skepticism that is only going to be compelling for people that have already decided they don't want to believe, which means apologists can disregard that and focus our attention elsewhere because for most of your normal, everyday atheists that we work with, that we go to school with, that we might be married to, it doesn't necessarily require absolute certainty. It just requires persuasion, and we have that in spades. All right, let's move on to another part of the discussion. And we are going to go on to two other thinkers as they show that uh, that T-Jump is using pinhole thinking that shouldn't really interest us and is completely uninteresting. And here is another part of the Doherty discussion, though. This the is- difference between appearance and reality has nothing whatsoever by itself to say on behalf of skepticism. Because all it says is the distinction only means this. At any given time... It's, it's possible, in some sense of possible, that the appearance isn't correctly indicating reality. But th- so what? So what if there's some possibility that appearance isn't um, correctly revealing reality? Why, why, why care? Why, some, some possibility, there's no need for some possibility to stop me from knowing. Because there are certain kinds of claims that entail that level of burden of proof. It's, it's pretty interesting. They all turn out to be claims you don't like. Yeah, like claims that there is an all-powerful, uncreated being. Yes. I didn't make that claim, I don't, and I don't need that claim. I'm happy with that. That would be good. That would be great. If we all adopted that, I'd be... 
Yeah. So just making the point even more clear, uh, Trent Doherty is right. Of course, sometimes appearances can be wrong, but th- but watch that. So what? You're 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 appealing to this small pinhole possibility that we're wrong. Who cares? The universe really seems intelligently designed, and you know Steve Gregg. I don't say this, but Steve Gregg, who's a colleague of mine, he's willing to say if an atheist tells me that they do not think at least seems intelligently designed, I'm not. Gonna, I don't. There's no point in talking to them about. It. I'm not going to spend my time talking to them because I don't think that they're being honest about it. Now, what that does not mean is. You know, an atheist could say, yeah, I, I grant that it seems intelligently designed, but for this reason and that reason and the other reason, I think that the design argument fails. Okay, that's fair enough. We can talk about that. But it seems really intelligently designed, and it seems like the more science we get on it, the more well-designed it seems to be. Cosmology, the, the more we study cosmology, the more reason we have um, from science and from philosophy to think that it that, that, that there is a beginning to the universe, probably, and certainly philosophically, because of the impossibility of a past infinite series of causal events. Um, it, but but to wiggle technically out of it through some, maybe there's some way. I don't think there is. But even if you think you can wiggle out of it somehow, that kind of a person, I'm completely disinterested. I want to reach you for Christ, but maybe the best I can do there is just to flatly preach the gospel. Because um, in terms of the evidence, I think you're looking for a pinhole escape. Because that's what it means to require Cartesian certainty to get to these sorts of, of conclusions. Now, I want us to move over to Dr. Clay Jones, um, who used to teach at Biola. Now, this is a very interesting discussion. It's on the problem of suffering, the problem of evil. And the reason that I think it's so interesting is because here, what T-Jump tries to show is that a, a, an omnibenevolent God, uh, who is like the God that Christians believe in, would have done it some other way where, not where there is no suffering, <laughs> but where suffering is optional. And his uh, way of explaining this is we can already create things like video games where we have difficulty settings, we can put in cheat codes, we can do invincibility mode, and people should be able to choose whether they have this or not. And they can all live in the same world. And some people may have chosen not to have invincibility and, and, and to have it on like the hardest difficulty setting, but other people have chosen not to so that those people that want to kill other people, there might be other people that they could kill, but those other people that they kill, they've decided to allow by putting their difficulty settings and their invincibility is off, and they didn't use the cheat codes. And so these people can interact, and people can kill each other and do whatever horrible, evil thing they want to do. But other people have the invincibility settings, and they live in the same world, so that the people that are playing the game for real, they can try to stab someone, but if that someone they try to stab turns out to be someone who's got their invincibility and their cheat codes and all that amped up, then it's not going to work. The knife's just going to go into an avatar, and there's no problem, and, and whatever. And you can even dial down your frustration level so you don't get frustrated and all this weird stuff. This is the pinhole for this discussion. This is, I can imagine, a weird, bizarre sort of a thing that certain people using illegal substances might talk about in the throes of their intoxication. This this sort of a thing is the pinhole through which maybe we could escape the force of the responses to the problem of evil. And, and, and I want you to notice, well, I'll play the clip and then we'll talk more about it. And from my position, if there was an all good, all powerful God, this is the only world that could create because if. Okay. I want you to notice, he said, if there is an all powerful, all good God, let me get it right. Um, it's optional. And from my position, if there was an all good, all powerful God, this is the only world that he could create. Now, now notice what he's just done 
And this is so important. Remember how a moment ago he was saying we couldn't say anything uh, with absolute, we couldn't make any absolute claims about uh, what this all-powerful, all-knowing God would do and have and all these kind of things. Well, here what he's saying is, uh, this is the only, the only explanation is he would do it like this. Think about that. Now, there's a couple of problems that have been known in the literature for years, decades about this. Uh, number one, it means that what he's presenting is something akin to a logical argument, even if he didn't give us premises and stuff. He's giving us something in a logical argument category. Now, when it comes to problem of evil arguments, you will present them with logical, you'll, you'll present, you can present a logical argument, which means, therefore, this must be the case or this is the only answer, versus an evidential argument from evil. An evidential argument from evil is a probabilistic one that's just meant to lower the probability that Christianity or that theism is true, okay? Which one is he giving us? Let me read again. From my position, if there was an all-good, all-powerful God, this is the only world that it could create. He is giving us a logical argument. By logical argument, I don't mean he's got a good argument. I mean he's claiming this is the only explanation. This is the only possible explanation. Logical arguments from evil were put to bed decades ago, and I've given in previous uh, uh, videos the quotes from people. In fact, I've got a, I've got a video, an 11-minute video. It's in our short videos playlist on the argument, why would, why would a loving God allow bad things or whatever? And I give you the quotes from uh, William Rowe and others who are saying, those logical arguments are dead and gone, and they're a waste of time. Because all the Christian has to show is any possible reason why such a God might have done it the way that he did or might allow for certain instances of evil that seem to uh, seem to be gratuitous evils, but can't be shown to be gratuitous evils. Okay, evils that don't serve some greater, greater good, you know. So, uh, so that's blunder number one that I see here with respect is an attempt to make a stronger case than what most of your uh, atheist philosophers are willing to make today. That's really important. Um, let's see what else he says. If it's if the God forces us to be in a world with involuntary suffering, that is by definition immoral. And so there can't be an all good God that could do that. Unless there is some overarching good that justifies his having done that. Um, let's let's keep going. We have to be much smarter than we are now because we'd be have to see that people were going to harm us in time to turn off or turn on the switch that makes us immaterial, right? So we'd have to be a lot more, we'd have to be pretty, pretty intelligent, superhuman, at least when it comes to our brains, because we would have to, because what if somebody's coming up behind me and shoots me in the back of the head and I don't see it coming and they actually kill me then? I don't, how does that work? Well, you, you would make the settings beforehand. So you'd say just anything that could kill me is off. So that, that's okay, not so anything that could kill me that was off. But what? But anything that could really hurt me is off too. Right. You can set the limit to say how much pain you're willing to okay, experience. Okay. So just how much like, I so, so don't guess too many people even want to stub their toes. We turn the stub your toe function off. I'm guessing. It's possible. And, uh, there are definitely people who would not do that for sure. <laughs> I mean, there's um, there's this thing in video games where people actually made an attachment for video games where it will like shock you if you ever take damage and cause you like seriously pain. So there are people who would deliberately choose for the harder settings in this world. Can you dial, can you dial this world down so that you don't experience any pain or frustration at all? Sure. I would say so you that's the case then how, why would you need someone to help you in a video game? 
because you'd always do well in the video game because you'd never suffer frustration over the way you were playing the video game. Or you would deliberately limit yourself. Like in a video game, I can use cheat codes and give myself infinite stats, but I don't do that. I play from the base stats and then level up and work hard to try and learn how to play the game because I enjoy it. So in that sense, I can help other people who are better at the game still teach me things and help me and give me items that I didn't have before. So I can still experience the morality of beneficial cooperation with other people, even though I have the option of just turning on the cheat codes and doing whatever I want. Right. I, it seems whatever we're talking about in that world, we're not talking about human beings as we know them. We're talking about God would have had, if God were to exist, he would have to have created beings that were significantly different than they are. Okay, so you, you see, when, when I talk about pinhole thinking, is there ever a better example than what we just saw? Well, you know, it's like it's like a video game, man. We got these cheat codes, and we and I'm sorry if this seems offensive. I think that T Jump can take it, frankly. I, and he and I have had friendly discussions. I think he's a nice guy. Um, friendly, you know, chat discussions a couple of times. Uh, I think he's a nice guy. I don't have anything against him as a person. I'm just attacking the uh, positions, not the person that stands behind the positions. But this really does seem like, I mean, come on, this sounds like the pinhole of all pinholes. Maybe it's like a video game and man, we can, we can set the cheat codes and the difficulty setting. We can set a don't stub your toe setting and a frustration setting, and we can choose what we want and all these kind of things. Now you might be thinking, yeah, but that's technically possible. If God exists, God would be able to do something like that. Sure. Why not? Of course, of course it is possible that God could Think about things in terms of a video game and make it this weird, bizarre, as as uh, Clay Jones put it, cartoon world where it all works like that. And uh, the, the Roadrunner's always running from Coyote, and Coyote can sometimes catch the Roadrunner, but when he tries to stab him with a fork, he disappears and goes immaterial. And it, it may really have been possible for God to do it that way. But this is the pinhole of all pinholes. You are looking for any way, this weird, bizarre theory way of wiggling out of the force of the responses that are very good to the logical, the, the, the most difficult to defend argument from evil, by the way, which is supposed to show that God so defined does not exist, which you said in your previous video, you couldn't do anyway. And we're trying to do at least with the supernatural. So, but how would I respond to this? If I actually justified this, which I'm saying if that sort of argumentation convinces people, again, I don't think that's the kind of person that is really seeking truth or trying to see what is actually probably the case. But let's just take it. If I took this for granted, what would I do? I would respond to this using Stephen Weikstra's cornea argument, but I would use it in a much broader sense, right? What I would say, the cornea argument is, is like saying, look here, um, you know, if we were to go out in the backyard and we were to look and say, um, are there worms in the backyard? I could look out and I could see no worms, right? In fact, I probably would see no worms, but then I could say, well, there's no worms in the backyard. Is that a fair assumption? No, because if there are worms in the backyard, I'm not the kind of, I'm not in a position to say with any kind of certainty whether or not there, there are worms by my glancing out of the window. Uh, another example, which is often given is, um, what if I had a telescope that could see, um, they could see Pluto, right? Am I justified in claiming there is no gold on the planet Pluto anywhere? Am I justified in making a claim like that? Of course not, because if there is gold on Pluto, I'm not in a position, even if I had a satellite circuit circling Pluto where, where it could look down at the surface, I'm still not in a position to make a claim about whether somewhere on Pluto there is gold. I, I can't I can't possibly possibly do that.
right? So, uh, whereas on the other hand, if there was a second moon circling the earth right now, I should be able to look up and see uh, that moon pretty clearly. Yeah, there's a moon there. So I can claim there's no second moon circling the earth. But I couldn't claim that about gold on the planet Pluto. The way I often say it is, my wife tells me, go in the kitchen and get a Diet Coke out of the refrigerator. I go and I look, I don't see anything. I come back, I say, there's no Diet Coke in the refrigerator. She says, no, I know there's Diet Coke. In the, just go back there and look and get the Diet Coke out of the refrigerator. I just put some in there. So I go, I look, I move stuff around. I, I get tired, I stop, I drink some milk, I keep looking. I come back, I say, there's no Diet Coke in the refrigerator. She goes in, she opens the refrigerator, she sees it, she takes the Diet Coke. Happens to me all the time. Now, I actually should have been able to see it there, but what it goes to show is sometimes even when you should be able to see uh, the thing that you're looking for and it's actually there, you might not see it. How does that apply to this subject? Just like gold on Pluto, just like worms in my backyard, just like Diet Coke in the refrigerator, it's not the case that if there's a reason God did things the way he did rather than do this weird video game world, it's not the case that we should be in a position where we should expect to be able to know that that would be a better way. You say, well, that's not give, That's just begging off answering. No, that is an answer. That is an answer. Um, the fact of the matter is, all I'm doing is responding to an argument made toward me. I'm not giving an argument for God's existence. This is an argument meant to show that God does not exist, at least so defined. I'm just pr providing a response to that, a defeater of sorts. And to my mind, it carries through perfectly nicely. But in terms of dignifying a response, once you get into this weird it's like cheat codes and difficulty levels and bosses and non-player characters and player characters and all this weird stuff. Uh, where I think we're at is that is a pinhole. And if, you, if you're happy trying to wiggle your way out of a pinhole to escape the force of the responses to the, problem, to the logical argument from evil, um, then that's the kind of person that isn't going to be convinced because they don't want to be convinced. Now, if someone wanted to challenge me back and say, but but Braxton, now you're doing exactly the thing that, that you're saying T-Jump shouldn't do, which is to expect, uh, to expect Cartesian certainty. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not asking for Cartesian certainty. W whether it's worms in my backyard or gold on Pluto or whatever else, I'm not talking about Cartesian certainty. I'm saying you're nowhere near anything like certainty or a knowledge claim on that. That is so far from any kind of a reason to believe that that's likely the case. Remember, his claim is, is a claim to certainty. He's claiming on his position, this is, the, this is the only way that a God like that could operate. That's a certain claim. What I'm saying is you don't have anywhere near the, the, the realm of, of making a claim like that. that. That is so far beyond what you have warrant in claiming that it should be dismissed as most uh, have dismissed it and have now gone for evidential arguments from evil. But I played this because I wanted you to see the weird, bizarre, outlandish. Now, here's the thing. Many people, I think, that are in T-Jump's audience, they listen to this, and, and T-Jump is a, um, a term cider. He's a term site. Not a termite, but a term site. And what I mean by a term site is he does, I believe, go and read some of these journal articles and things like that and finds where certain terms are used. And then he cites those terms and he perhaps quote, uh, you know, mentions a, 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 an expert here or there in a way to kind of validate and make his position sound like it's this really uh, sophisticated and academic position that should be, uh, you know, taken more seriously than these Christians are taking it. But the thing about it is, it, it doesn't escape the fact that what you're doing is still pinhole thinking. It may sound impressive to some people, and it wouldn't sound impressive to 
the normal atheist that I talk to, because it's 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 letting your biases hang out pretty obviously because of the requirement of Cartesian certainty. So, all right, let's keep moving on. Let's keep trucking. Um, and let's see another example here. We've got Liz Jackson. This is very recent. And uh, they were discussing the um, Pascal's wager and her version of Pascal's wager, which only requires, by the way, that it's kind of like this. It's like, look, um, if, if, you know, God's, if God exists uh, and you believe in him, this is very fundamental, right? Then there may be this infinite reward, right? Uh, infinite. Okay, if you don't if 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 you don't believe in him and he does exist, there may be this infinite punishment. At least on some religions, right? There may be this infinite punishment. So at least with some religions, you've got and they're theistic ones. You have this infinite positive possibility and this infinite punishment possibility. What do you get on on not believing, remaining in naturalistic atheism? You only get finite rewards and punishments, right? You only get finite stuff. So uh, her point is not that it's very conservative. It's not a point that um, we that that, uh, that there's better reason to believe that theism is true than um, or Christianity is true, perhaps than atheism. It's just that even if you think uh, that atheism is far more likely the case, if there is a non-zero probability that theism is true, and we have you know infinite punishment and reward on the table. That even though it's it's you think it's less likely than atheism, if it's a non-zero probability and the outcomes are infinite, then you should choose to follow um, one of the one of the religions. And I think that's right, uh, Liz. If it's not, then forgive me. Now his response to this is a pinhole. Are you surprised? Well, you shouldn't be. His his pinhole response to this is, wait a minute, uh, maybe. Even if I grant that maybe theism is true, there is an equal, understand, equal likelihood that that some God that exists will punish people for believing as for not believing. Like he may punish them for believing too quickly on bad evidence, or even maybe he values evil works. Well, let's let T-Jump speak for himself. Do you think um, atheists are just as likely to go to heaven as theists? or as people that commit their lives to God and make big sacrifices for God and pursue God. Um, do you think it's this equal probability that atheists go to heaven and that like, like we can take theists that make serious sacrifices for God? Yes, I would say that. Of going to heaven? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that we have no evidence to conclude what the ultimate nature of reality is, whether it's a God or a natural thing, whether there's a heaven or not. And the probability that any one particular action or set of actions <laughs> is likely to get you into that heaven is no more or less probable than any other set of actions. So picking your nose on a Tuesday is equally as likely to get you into heaven as devoting your life to Jesus. Yeah, that's really interesting because, I mean, you're alluding to this thing, it's called the mixed strategies objection. And it's just saying Pascal's wager gives all decisions the same um, expected value. But <coughs> that objection is based on this idea that you take the probability and you multiply it by infinity and then they're all just infinite. And so that's why I gave the game show analogy because it's supposed to show like probability matters. And what I think you're coming back and saying is, oh, but like the probability of all of those is this, is just exactly the same. And that's, I mean, that's a view. You can totally have that view. And honestly, the entire paper that I wrote that I was talking about earlier, that's not gonna 
touch that. But um, part of what we were sort of pushing is if you do have this view that theists are more likely to go to heaven than atheists, we can, you know, we're not saying you have to have that view or anything, but if you do have that view, then you should be a theist, for example. So you're basically just saying, I just think any action is just as likely to send you to heaven as any other action. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly so right. So like even murdering, like yep. spending your life like Jeffrey Dahmer versus like Mother Teresa, you think they're equally likely to go to heaven? Yes, I think that it's equally as likely wow. there is a God that would reward moral actions that we see as moral versus a God that would reward immoral actions. So it's equally as likely that Mother Teresa would be allowed into heaven as Hitler or something because we have no reason to conclude anything about if there was a heaven, what would it be like? Or if there was a God, what would it be like? The properties of its nature are essentially ambiguous. We can just pick, maybe it has this property, and that is equally as likely as just pick any other alternative negation of that. Okay, now notice <laughs> notice two things here in terms of body language and tone. When he says that, he's sitting there smirking, smiling, nodding like this, right? Which that's pretty much his default is to sit there like this, but there was this smile like, I know this is incredibly shocking for you to hear me say, right? And maybe a little bit of pride in the, that he thought of this, or, or at least is popularizing it wherever he got it. Um, why would he suspect that would be shocking? Not just because it's incredibly counterintuitive, but I suspect because it's kind of like you feel like you're getting away with something because you know, and her response to that is, um, I mean, you could totally hold that. Uh, elsewhere, she says in this video, I mean, I think most people <laughs> would think that theists of some sort, for some reasons, have more of a likelihood than than atheists. Uh, right, because she's seeing this thing that Trent Doherty saw, that I think Clay Jones saw, that I'm calling out specifically in this video, which is, you're kind of looking for a pinhole here, pal. I mean... I want to I want to track with you, bud. But what you're telling me is now let's let's take it at face value again. Let's take it at face value. Is it is it equally equally likely that atheists get to heaven as theists get to heaven? Is it equally as likely uh, that you'll go to heaven for being Jeffrey Dahmer as for being Mother Teresa? Now, obviously, within Christianity, we have particular doctrinal positions about. Um, the nature of salvation and all that sort of thing. But I think if you asked any Christian, if you asked any person on the street, if you asked any atheist, if there is a God, is it more likely that theists will go to heaven if there's a heaven as opposed to atheists? Is it more likely you go for being Mother Teresa than Jeffrey Dahmer? Uh, what would they say? They would, they would, I'm telling you, it's gotta be, I haven't done the empirical study, gotta be somewhere in the 90 something percentile would say, no, no, no. Uh, you you would need to you would need to be a theist. You you would have better chance if you were Mother Teresa than if you were Jeffrey Dahmer. Now he actually says in response to that here, um, not if I explain my way of thinking. Yeah, I'm sorry, I doubt it because on your way, yeah, you might you know convince a, a half a percent or something, but most people will see that for what it is, a pinhole. The people that will be convinced by that are the people that want to get out of it anyway. The people who are looking for a way not to believe because that is not about what should persuade you. That's about your personal, like, you know, that's about the only way that would be persuading is if you are looking to be persuaded against it. I'm sorry. I'm calling a spade a spade. Now, um, in terms of responding to it, no, that is not the case. This is not the case. I'll give you at least one really good reason why it's not equally likely that God would reward immoral behavior um, as he would moral behavior. 
we are aware that we seem to have these moral intuitions, right? So if there is possibly a God, then is you would be a viol, you would be violating uh, you would be violate, violating Occam's razor in order to maintain what you're maintaining. So um, you, you could so if we have these moral intuitions, it would be reasonable and would count in favor of a God who would reward moral behavior to say, um, okay, I seem to have these moral intuitions. So do most people. So it seems like this God is interested in those moral attributes. Now. Perhaps T-Jump's uh, possible God would say, no, 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 because this was a trick. And what I reward are clever people who see the trick for what it is and go in opposition to the moral behavior. But understand, that is to multiply explanatory variables beyond what is necessary to explain the phenomenon. What is necessary to explain the phenomenon is a God who rewards, the, who's, who gave us morals because he wants us to in some way follow those morals. To then say, maybe that's true, except he gave them to you to trick you is another layer deep beyond what's necessary to explain the behavior and the equality goes away and the Pascal's wager is back on the table. But that's to take this seriously. And as much as I appreciate Tom as a person, this sort of thinking should not be taken seriously because Liz is absolutely right. If you talk to the average person, they're going to they're gonna see it the way that she's setting it up, which then works against uh, T-Jump because it seems like he's saying, I mean, yeah, if you were, if, if I granted that you were right, that, that it's, that there is no such equality, you should do the thing that, that, that is going to maximize your reward and, and, um, and minimize your punishment. Okay. Well then since nobody else, almost nobody else who isn't already looking to be convinced agrees with that sort of pinhole thinking, then yeah, uh, we should all be theists, right? Then we just get to talk about what kind. So, you know, um, this kind of brings me to the end of the video. This is really all I wanted to say. But to summarize, my point is this. Number one, um, Tom has set up a system where, at least with certain claims, we have to have Cartesian certainty before we will believe them. This gets him off of the hook in terms of needing to defend any kind of um, burden of proof. And it also puts the bar as incredibly high as it can possibly be for uh, the Christian theist or for theists at all. Uh, secondly, then the way he uh, escapes you having anything close to Cartesian certainty is to come up with weird, bizarre hypotheticals that much of the time he doesn't even believe are the case and is happy to tell you that, um, that might possibly be true that would then allow for a pinhole escape from the force of the arguments. And my position is the only people who are interested in the pinhole escape are the people who are not interested in the truth. These are the people who are interested not in what should persuade them, but how they can escape the force of the arguments and sound like they have some intellectually good reason for escaping them. Again, I want to say uh, I love T-Jump. This channel exists because we love atheists. I think that he is very clever. There's no question that he's very clever. Um, but I think these are all things that need to be taken into consideration when you're weighing the arguments of T-Jump, looking at him in the future, considering whether you should debate him in the future, and basically pinhole thinking should be called out for what it is and dismissed. Not because we don't respect the person, but because we don't respect the methodology, and the methodology misunderstands what Christian apologists are trying to accomplish anyway. I've had a lot of fun with this, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Trinity. radio.